Today, uh, on our second week of our new series, Strong Church, we have these workbooks that we made up and printed. Uh, If you do not yet have one, they're totally free, and there's a stash of them over by the door on the left. Go ahead, grab one right now. Um, So the, the series of, or the purpose of this series is it's called Strong Church, and it is subtitled Essentials for the Thriving Church Community. Right, so it's pretty obvious what this is about. It is a series that is meant to equip and strengthen not just the church as an organization, but the people that make up and comprise the church. So there's a couple reasons we're doing this. One is uh, we've had a lot of new folks the last couple months, and that is so exciting. And we want you, as you're entering, to not only feel welcome, but feel oriented. What is this church about? What are we pointed towards? How, what are the things we kind of build our healthy life together on? Uh, it's also just good reminder for all of us Um, especially as we've moved into a new building and it's, it's, okay, what's going to be the same? What's going to change? And we're pretty emphatically saying, hey, not a whole lot's changing. We got a slightly bigger, well, very much more red platform, (laughs) but other than that, not a whole lot's changing. Uh, Another reason is you guys all know summer in North Idaho is a blast and there is lots to enjoy and feast on and camping and and, uh, fires and something you can probably identify with is many of us like have maybe like some spiritual growth into the spring and then summer, we just kind of coast. And then we find ourselves in the fall, dry, empty, disorganized, distracted. And so we want to go into summer with, with um, not like rules that we have to do, but with, with things that will keep us alive and vibrant all summer long. And so a big theme of this series is, is personal ownership of each of our discipleship to Jesus. It's not my job or their job to keep you healthy. It is your job in life-giving relationship with Jesus. And we exist to build you up and give you tools to help in that process. So um, a couple quick notes on this, our workbook. Uh, First, you'll notice there's an introduction. Feel free to read that. That'll kind of tee you up, give you some philosophy of what we're doing. And then you'll notice each week has on the left-hand side, the graphic that's kind of like graphically orienting us. It also has four questions. They're pretty much the same questions with a little bit of nuance for each subject. It's basically, why is this important for your discipleship? Why would its absence be harmful? Why is its presence important for our church? in its health, why would its absence threaten the health of our church? These are actually really pointed but helpful questions. And then a section for notes. And then you'll notice on page 22 in the back is a personal discipleship plan. So this is three big categories that you can be thinking through. How am I embracing the gospel of Jesus, right? Through some basic disciplines, spending time in prayer, time in the word. Second big category, how am I living life in community with the body of Jesus? And then third big category, how am I obeying his call to go outward and share my faith in a life-giving, meaningful way to the people around me? Uh, If you honestly are missing any of those three categories, you're like a a tripod with only two feet. (laughs) It's not going to last very long. And so, um, again, personal ownership, a lot of those things are uncomfortable, but they are necessary for your and our thriving as a church community. Now, One thing you'll notice as we continue this, and this is going to be different, excuse me, this difference will continue until the end of the series. Uh, This series is about personal ownership rather than monologue. Therefore, we're going to change the the, the feel of this up a little bit. Uh, For the next eight weeks, we are going to do a teaching component that's going to be about 20 minutes. And then uh, you are going to have about four minutes of individual reflection time, answer the questions, circle some stuff, write a prayer, whatever that's going to be. And then the teacher will get back up and do a a short teaching on application-heavy nuance. 
Okay, great. We've got some philosophy. Now, where do we get into the meat in our lives? And then after that, you're going to have 10 minutes of community discussion. <gasps> and, and we're encouraging you to, to pair up in groups of four, five, six, whatever that might be. Feel free to get up, move. I'll give more instruction on that. If your stomach just dropped, I promise you the people around you are probably way more interesting and nice than you think. And, and we're going to do this for eight more weeks. You'll get used to it. It'll be fine. Uh, so as I, I jump in, does anyone remember, feel free to shout this out. What was last week about? Yeah, PDP, that was kind of the intro like we did. But what was the, the main teaching emphasis about last week? The centrality of the gospel. If you are a disciple who's building your relationship with Jesus on anything besides the gospel, it gets sideways real fast, right? If you're a church, building a community on people or on something other than the gospel gets sideways real fast because now you're a church built on a leader or a personality or an organization or you're a church built on great worship experiences or, or great outreach. But if you're not built on the life-giving message of the gospel, you're going to go sideways. And today we are preaching on the sacraments because they are the gifts that Jesus has given us to remember the gospel. By the church, by keeping the sacraments central, it keeps the gospel central. So let's get into the gospel. My sermon title for this week is The Sacraments, the Embodied Gospel. So here's where we're going. Here's a quick roadmap. We're going to look at real fast what are the sacraments, how many sacraments are there, why do we even call them the sacraments? Then we're going to look at what are the, where do they originate in biblical history and how are they fulfilled when proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And then last, we're going to look at how are the sacraments embodied gospel? What does that actually mean? And then I'll give you some reflection time. During application time, I'll get back up, talk about a few practical effects of the sacraments in the life of a disciple and the whole church community. So let's jump right in. What are the sacraments? Well, interestingly... Uh, Catholic tradition holds to seven sacraments. Uh, they believe that they are means of grace, things that God's given the official ministry of the church. So people that are ordained or as, as priests or leaders, they can perform or supervise these sacraments and they convey the grace of God. They are, are ceremonies that pass on or convey the grace of God. And the seven that the Catholic church holds to is baptism, confirmation, Communion, penance or confession, extreme unction, meaning like uh, the anointing of the sick or the last rites of the people on their deathbed. Six would be the holy orders or the ordination of priests or the diaconate. And then the seventh would be matrimony. Now, you, as I'm reading those off, probably say, yeah, great, confession, repentance, marriage, like communion. These all are great, right? Very much. But we as non-Catholics hold that there's a difference between sacraments, which I'll explain, and means of grace. So a simple way of understanding a means of grace is it, are, it is the many varied activities within the church that God's given us as special ways of receiving his grace, day by day, week by week. So we would take all the above and then add to them all the universal Christian acts, like the teaching of the word is a means of conveying God's grace. Prayer is a means of conveying God's grace. Worship, a way of um, sharing God's grace. Church discipline conveys God's grace. Giving, spiritual gifts, fellowship, evangelism, the ministry to individuals, and the list goes on and on. But the word sacrament, we hold to a standard because the word sacrament comes uh, from Latin, right? It was uh, first begun used by the Catholic Church. And if, like, think root word sacred, 
Sacrament, sacred, right? Sacred means something that's dedicated, set apart for worshiping God, right? It's something that has a holiness about it. Other words you might be familiar with is like sacralize, to make something holy, or sacrilege, to defame something and to take away its holiness. All those root words come together into sacrament. So a sacrament is a sacred element or a sacred ritual in the, in, as a means of conveying God's grace. Now, as I continue, and, and you've probably heard this in the life of the church, you might also hear the word ordinance, So sacrament and ordinance are kind of parallels, but an ordinance is a little bit different. Uh, Protestants get a little bit squeamish about saying any magical act conveys God's grace. grace. So we get a little bit nervous. So we say, okay, let's not use the word sacrament. Let's use the word ordination. These are acts of faith ordained by Jesus. He's ordained it and said, disciples, go and do these things. So sacrament and ordinance can kind of be used in parallel. Now, non-Catholic tradition holds to two sacraments, and that's what we're going to talk about both of these today, baptism and communion. Now, why only two? Well, we hold to a high bar and say that, one, a, a sacrament is, is a symbolic act of faith. Yes, that's kind of by bare bones definition, but second criteria, it has to be commanded by Christ. There's lots of means of grace but it has to be commanded by Christ to meet the bar of ordinance or sacrament. And then third, it is something that is confirmed by the apostles as regular practices of the early church. If you look at the life of the early church, they are doing these things in obedience to the commands of Christ. Now, let's, that's kind of high level. What are the sacraments? Where do they, um, what what does the word sacrament mean? Now let's get into how do they originate in in biblical history and how do they show Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and prophets? So real quick flyover. Um, Both of the sacraments were prophetically preparing us for Jesus who came to complete them. The sacraments before Jesus' time in biblical history were already existent, and they were meant to prepare us for the completion of the sacrament message in the person of Jesus. This is why in in Matthew chapter 5, you're probably familiar, Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm not making a bunch of stuff up. I'm coming to complete something that's been prepared beforehand. The most direct and obvious origination of uh, communion actually comes from the Passover from Exodus chapter 12. If you're familiar, Israel's been in slavery within Egypt, and God has chosen to remove them out of their slavery, to choose them as his holy people. Um, And in order to rescue them, God is sending a consequence of death over all the land of Egypt. Because Egypt and um, some of these people have been in disobedience, rejecting God and God's plan to uh, save Israel out of slavery, He's sending a consequence of death to the firstborn. And God has chosen to protect these people or anyone within Egypt who chooses faith in God. He's protecting them from the consequence of death by offering the death of a lamb in substitute. And so the people of Israel on the night of Passover killed a lamb, ate its body, and sprinkled its blood over the door so that the consequence of sin would pass over them meaning the lamb died in their place. Now, throughout Israel's history, God gave them all sorts of annual feasts and festivals, and every single one had physical reminders of his covenant, his presence, and his 
history of faithfulness in their lives. And so Israel continued to celebrate Passover with physical reminders, and they celebrated in remembrance of God's rescue from their slavery and how he provided a way for consequence to pass over them through the body and the blood of a lamb who died in their place. Now, you could go even farther back if you like really wanted to chase down the um, communion imagery. You could go all the way back to Genesis 3, where at the fall, animal skins are used to clothe Adam and Eve. If you're interested in that, go hunt it down. Check out Genesis chapter 3. But the Passover is the most direct and explicit origin. Now, interestingly, the people of Israel followed and observed Passover every single year for 1,200 to 1,500 years before Jesus shows up. They have been celebrating this as a a heritage and a tradition to bind them as united as a people underneath God's authority for over a thousand years. And this, every time they did it, it was a remembrance of a symbolic meal that there was a lamb that died in their place. And every year they used unleavened bread and wine as a symbolic ritual to remember this. So let's get into communion more like the meat of it. Where does this tie to Jesus? How does Jesus tie it to himself? Um, So go ahead and turn to John chapter six. While you're turning there, I'm just gonna give you short explanation of two other um, words you'll hear in parallel with communion. Communion is often called communion, Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. Eucharist is coming from the Greek word eucharisteo or eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. So we are giving thanks to Jesus for his new covenant. Or you'll hear the Lord's Supper. Um, You'll see when we read Luke chapter 22 in just a little bit, it was the last supper of Jesus with his disciples, and so it's called the Lord's Supper. So communion, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, all the same thing. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 6, verse 32 through 35. So I'm going to give just some real quick setup, and then we'll, we'll read this together. So at this point... Jesus has been on the scene doing miracles. Uh, He has just fed 5,000 people by miraculously multiplying loaves and fishes. And then uh, they kind of call it a day. His disciples get on a boat, head back toward Capernaum. And then Jesus goes up into the mountains. Uh, At night, a big storm comes. Jesus walks on water four miles over the water to his disciples. They freak out. They think he's a ghost. He ends up getting on the boat with them. Bible's kind of weird here. They teleport <laughs> to Capernaum on the opposite side of the shore as Jesus is absolutely revealing, I am God. I'm not just like a, 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 two, a two-cent miracle worker. I am God himself. And then the next morning, Jesus is at the synagogue and a couple of people are like, hey, you're Jesus from the other side of the lake. We were there, but we saw you go up in the mountains. How'd you get here? And then Jesus does this interesting thing where he says, hang on, I'm not going to answer that question. Instead, I want to point out that you're here, you're interested in me, not because of the miracles that attest to me being God. You're here because you kind of want a free handout. There was a big old feast yesterday, as much as you could eat because of the the food that I gave you and my disciples gave you, and now you're just stoked for another handout. What's going to be next, Jesus? And they say, okay, okay, so what should we be focusing then on, Jesus? How do we do the works of God? And Jesus says, The work of God is this, that you believe. That you believe in me, who I am. 
And they say, okay, but what sign, what evidence do you give that you're the one we're supposed to believe in? You know, back in, if in Israel's days, they had manna. God gave them bread from heaven as a sign of, of faith and belief. And Jesus goes, okay, first off, it wasn't Moses that gave you manna. It was God the Father. And God the Father right now is giving you new bread from heaven that will give you eternal life. And I love Jesus here. He is a fisher of men. He kind of leaves the hook in the, in the water God sent you bread from heaven for eternal life. And they're like, well, what is it? (laughs) And Jesus, in full audacity, says, it's me. Would you read with me? John 6, 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now I'm going to skip over a few paragraphs. Basically next, the Jewish people get really mad. What are you talking about? You're the bread of life? How dare you say that? And Jesus doubles down and says, Unless you believe in me, you will not have eternal life. Would you read with me uh, a little bit farther, John 47 through 51? He continues, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, notice, the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Quick summary of the next couple paragraphs. The Jews, again, are angry, confused. It's probably a better word. And he says, look, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will not have eternal life. And then very reasonably, his disciples say, Jesus, this is confusing. What do you mean? And then he reminds them that it is the spirit that gives life and flesh is no help at all. In other words, what else do you think can give you eternal life but God himself? Like, do you want a meal? You want some accolades? You want a promotion? You want some wealth? What do you... What do you actually think can give you eternal life if it is not God himself sacrificing for you? And it's clear that his disciples are wrestling with this as a mysterious spiritual reality in much the same way that you and I do. But Jesus very concretely here says, I am the bread of true life. I, Jesus, am sent by the Father. Your work is to believe. So please take part of my flesh and my blood, and by doing this, you abide in me, and you have new eternal life. You have union with the Father. And again, like, what else could we possibly expect to do something this miraculous? To give us eternal life, union with the Father, but the Son of God sent from heaven to rescue us. If we have anything else at the center of our lives, we are mistaken. Jesus then brings this to a point of clarity in Luke 22. All of the 
Gospels have a, the moment of, of um, the Lord's Supper. But let's jump to Luke 22, verse 19 through 20. It'll also be up on the screen if you just want to read it real fast with me. Jesus, the night before his death, he takes bread. When he had given thanks, when he had given Eucharisteo, he broke the bread and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup, after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So notice, Jesus is saying, this is my body. I'm breaking my body for you. Remember this. And then he says, this cup is my blood that I am pouring out for a new covenant, a new promise, a new agreement. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But Jesus is saying that I'm offering a new option to you. I'm offering you a, a, a sacrifice for humanity that is better than a lamb. I am more than just an animal. I am the lamb of God, fully human, fully divine, sent from heaven for this purpose, to give you life through the breaking of my body. And Jesus, as a man, was blameless and righteous and perfect, the only one able to die fully in the place of someone else. Now, quick aside, do you remember how I said this goes all the way back to day one of creation? Now, we're not going to explore this very much, but I just want to point out, at the very beginning of Genesis, God creates all of the cosmos, and then he makes the earth, and then he makes a garden, and he puts man and woman in the garden, and he makes them in his image, and he says, eat. Eat of any tree in the garden that you want, including the tree of life. But he does say, refrain don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of life here in the garden is an edible image. The tree of life is an edible image of God's ultimate gift to creation. God is offering Adam and Eve and all humanity the opportunity to share in and receive God's own goodness and life. Now, before Adam and Eve eat that, they actually eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They forfeit their access to the tree of eternal life. And they do so by choosing to define goodness and evil by their own authority, by mistrusting God. But now Jesus here is saying, through my broken body and my spilled blood, through my life, death, and resurrection, I'm establishing a new covenant. And Jesus sets up here himself as a new tree of life. He says, anyone who believes in me, come and eat of the tree of life. So if we take his promise through faith, we eat his body and his blood ceremonially through faith, then we will have eternal life. Somehow, mysteriously, spiritually, receiving God's own goodness in life. So what is your work? What is your work in all this? To believe the one who God has sent. And the entry point for this new covenant, this brand new access to this new tree of life, the very first step in entering this new covenant is to repent, to believe. And the very second step is to be baptized. Would you uh, look with me? Uh, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. So the very next step, uh, if we want to, Jesus, his body and his blood broken for us has made a new covenant possible. And now the entry point is repentance, belief, and baptism. Uh, interestingly, in Acts chapter 22, Paul the apostle himself 
repents, believes, and then the people around him say, Paul, why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on Jesus' name. And this is where the idea of washing away sins comes from. So here's some quick uh, biblical history, and then we'll get to Colossians 2. Uh, Baptism here is actually drawing off of origins of ceremonial washing, which we first see in Exodus 30, but then also all throughout the book of Leviticus. So uh, this is after Jesus has rescued his people by passing over them through the death of a lamb, its body and its blood. Now they're out in the wilderness. They are his people, but something's still wrong. They're still separated from him by their own sin, guilt, and spiritual uncleanliness. And so God chose to make this spiritual reality physical to them by connecting uncleanliness with anything that had to do with death or the brokenness of creation. So if you touch blood, it represents the spilling of life. If you touch disease, it represents the decay of the body. If you participate in violence, it is physical evidence of spiritual evil. So if you are near or around or touch any of those things, you now physically get to have to represent washing by going and ceremonially cleaning up. God's making physically tangible something that is mysterious and spiritual. Now, in this context, in order to enter the presence of God, you had to be clean of death and the brokenness of creation. You had to be clean of death and the brokenness of creation. So God's people in the temple had to offer atoning sacrifices like the lamb, and they had to ceremonially wash themselves. But after they had cleansed themselves and were ceremonially pure, they could then enter the temple or the physical representation of God's presence. So notice that. In order to be in God's presence, to be unseparated, you had to be pure and clean. You had to have your sins and the brokenness of the world washed away from you. And they, interestingly, at this point in time, would have washed using basins, right? Gone into the, the temple, washed their hands and their feet. They also would have bathed physically in mikvah, which were basically like big baptismals. You'd get in, wash yourself, and then get out. Or even rivers. Uh, any natural source of water was considered pure and clean, unless it had been defiled. Now, importantly for all of that, remember this. All of this was ceremonial, All of this God gave them as physical things to help them understand their baseline separation that needed to be reconciled through atonement and washing. Some sort of mysterious and spiritual atonement and washing. Which brings us to ceremonial cleansing in the day of Jesus. This uh, um, history or this process of ceremonial cleansing, again, had been uh, lasted for over a thousand years. This is what John the Baptist was doing in the Jordan River. If you're familiar with John chapter 3, John the Baptist is in the river baptizing people, washing them. But here's here's what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene. John the Baptist pauses, drops everything, and I'm going to summarize this. He basically says this. He says, hey, everybody, I'm here preparing everyone to receive the Messiah. I'm preparing this so you receive him. I'm teaching repentance and baptizing with water. But this guy right here, Jesus... Quote, he is the Lamb of God. He is here who comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Do something far more mysterious and spiritually profound than any ceremony we've ever had on hand. Which leads us to baptism in Colossians 2. Our entry point to the new covenant that is proclaimed by communion is washing and death. 
the dying of our old selves, our false selves, in order to receive brand new life, entirely brand new life from a better eternal source. Importantly here, you can't have a little of the old life and a little bit of the new life through self-help and growth. You need a totally new life, which is received through Jesus' new covenant from his body and his blood. Would you read with me Colossians 2, verse 6 through 15? Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Big bold letters here. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In short, we have a legal demand against us due to our own brokenness and sin, the harm we commit against ourselves and others. And if any of us can refute that, it is entirely because of our own intentional blindness. Who here can assume to stand before God and say, I have nothing wrong in the record of my life. I have no need of forgiveness from my family, my friends, my community, much less my God. I would even argue those of us who struggle with the reality of God at all must come to terms with bare minimum, I need help because there is a record of debt that I carry and there's no amount of self-help, there's no amount of counseling that can pay for that. So Jesus has come to cancel that record of debt by nailing it to the cross, removing all legal demands that are on us. And he does this by unifying us with himself. He fills us with his spirit, making us unified with him to forgive us of all of our trespasses. And this happens through our burial, our actual mysterious spiritual dying with him in the process of baptism. We enter the grave of the water, The old self dies and we come up receiving the new life of Christ, entirely new life. Jesus then, after his his own resurrection, after teaching his disciples about baptism, he then gives them a charge and a commission to go into the world. And he says this in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And before we move on, I just want to say this feels really important. (laughs) 
when the Lamb of God who's come to rescue the world says, go and baptize people, go and be baptized, that feels really important. And so my question to you is, have you been baptized? It seems that Jesus takes this very seriously. Now, to wrap up this teaching portion, I've just got a couple quick things. The sacraments are embodied gospel. Now, Trevor, what does that mean? I've got a couple of quick points for you. Number one, the sacraments use your body to remember the gospel. They use your physical self to experience something spiritual and mysterious. So the sacraments are a gift in which you can physically experience God's faithfulness to you. And you can physically proclaim your faithfulness to him. Two, the sacraments remind us about Jesus' body. They embody the person of Jesus. The ceremonies of baptism as well as communion remind us that the gospel is historic, it is tangible, and it is reality because of a real man, Jesus, who gave himself out of real love for real people to be really forgiven and given real new life. The sacraments also help us remember the gospel is, this one's out of left field, the gospel is about your body. We are made as embodied souls by our creator. Seemingly, he did not make us as as white glowing orb creatures that happen to be inside of a meat sack. (laughs) This is part of who I am, inseparably. And Jesus' plan is to resurrect this and to glorify this, to heal and restore this and everything in it, around it, whatever I might be. The last point about the embodied gospel is the the sacraments keep the gospel in the center of Jesus' body, the church. When we proclaim that our entry into the family of God is through baptism, our very first possible conclusion is that my death is paid for by Jesus, and my life is now lived in him. That is the entry point to the family of God. The proclamation, Jesus has died for me and I don't deserve this. And now I live in his name with his people. And this is why we as his gathered body are constantly taking communion. Because we need to remember what is the most important thing. Who is the most important person? The most important person is not me when I take communion. The most important person is God himself who came as the lamb of God to break his body, shed his blood, to give me eternal life. So now we, every single week, feast on the gospel. We feast on the body and the blood of Jesus that reconciles us to God. And when we take both of these sacraments together, baptism and communion, together they shout at us. Our salvation and our life is from Jesus, through Jesus, by Jesus, and in Jesus. And without Jesus, we are nothing and we have nothing. And this is good news. This is where I give you guys four minutes for reflection time. Here's just some simple ways to think about this. Engage with the scriptures that are on the headers of that page. Jot down some thoughts, some some loose ends. If you want, close your eyes and spend a few minutes in prayer and gratitude. If you want to get a head start, you can begin answering those questions on the left side of the page. But would you pray with me real fast?
Father, praise be to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Praise be to you. This new covenant is not uh, at the top of a ladder of our good works. It is the message of the lamb that came to shed himself freely. And all we need to do is believe, receive, and eat. To die with you and to live with you. Would you make this real for us, Lord, as we spend some time in reflection? Amen. There will be a a short timer on the screen. I'll jump back up, give you like two, three minutes of practicals, and then you'll get some time to converse in community. Thanks.
Don't worry, we're not at the part we have to talk to people yet. Got a couple of really short points of application, practical things that taking the sacraments do for us. Um, Number one, by taking the sacraments, we are acting obediently to Jesus, our King. Jesus has commanded baptism. He has commanded that when we take communion, we do this in remembrance of him as often as we meet together. And so both of these are Jesus' direct commands, then practiced by the early church underneath the leadership of the apostles. So as heavy-handed as this sounds, to disregard these things is to disobey Jesus. And obedience here is always an opportunity for worship and delight, for gospel freedom and gospel power. So I urge you, if you've not yet obeyed him in these things, would you choose to do so? Second thing, the sacraments practically connect us to the global and the historic church. This is what Jesus' people have been doing since hour zero. As long as there's been a thing called a Christian, this is what they've been doing. And so the sacraments practically remind us that we do not do DIY theology. We do not do build a bare faith. We have been handed down tradition from the family of Jesus before us. There is lots of space for creativity, but we hold fast to what is core. We are gospel-centered all day long, and we build our faith on the exact same rock as all believers before us from day one. And interestingly and practically, Jesus' people all across the globe are partaking in these exact same sacraments, and they point us to the exact same Jesus. So all faithful churches lean hard on the sacraments because they embody the gospel of Jesus. Practically what this means is it does not matter what church you walk into, how good or bad their worship music is, if you like or don't like the pastor, if they are taking the sacraments and building their church on them, they are brothers and sisters, and you belong. And you can lean in and you can throw in. Third, the sacraments proclaim the gospel through community. Many of us wrestle with embarrassment, toxic shame, or doubt. Does Jesus love me? Am I really forgiven? Could he handle this? And Jesus' plan here is not only to save individuals. He's saving individuals into a family. And so we now experience life-giving relationships with one another and God the Father. We baptize people into the family, and we proclaim the gospel together as a family. So when we are weak or questioning, we have Christian brothers and sisters who say, I know your sin feels too big. Do you taste that communion juice? That's the blood of the Lamb of God. Is your sin too big for him? The correct answer is hell no. (laughs) Now, the last, the sacraments are a taste of what is to come. This is a quick quote I'm going to read to you by a gal named Shara Dramala, and she wrote this in collaboration with Dr. Ben Tertian. They say this about the sacraments being a taste of what is to come. Quote, the ongoing and repeated participation in the Lord's Supper reminds us that as wonderful as it is, it is not the final meal that Jesus has prepared. When Jesus returns, he will gather his people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and they will once again have access to the tree of life, and he will bring them to the meal that he prepared for them, and they will enjoy an eternally life-giving meal in his presence. So the Lord's Supper reminds us of the life and the works of Jesus, and it marks us as a people of his new covenant. 
So while we do this, it anticipates the final glorious feast. The communion meal serves as a taste of what is to come, a taste of true life. And as we practice this new covenant meal, may it stir within us hope for Jesus' return and thankfulness for who he is and what he's done. This is where you get a couple minutes to converse with each other, and I just want to say something. We say this a lot, but I want to say it again. Church is not an event that we attend. It is the family that we belong to. Now, for me personally, sometimes I'm at Thanksgiving, and there's just some cousins and uncles I really don't want to talk to. And my mom puts my plate right next to theirs, and I got to enjoy it. This might be a little bit awkward, but it is living out with our bodies what we say with our philosophy. So would you connect with five or six people around you? Feel free to get up and move. There's going to be a timer on the screen. I ran late in my preaching, so we're only going to go to the five-minute mark, uh, and then I'll jump back up, and um, we'll take communion and round out. But that timer's on the screen, so you can, like, pace your conversation. You don't have to end and, and wonder, is there more time left? And then we sit there awkwardly. You can run full steam until you see that timer hit five, and then I'll jump back up. Now, I, I do want to say this. If you're new to all of life, or you are not yet following Jesus, or you've chosen not to at this point, I just want to say, don't worry. This is a room full of people who build their whole lives on the idea that we don't need to perform, and that messy people are accepted and loved and welcome. We don't do that perfectly, but that's what we build our lives on. And so I would just say, if you're here, feel free to say something as simple as like, hey, I'm new to this. Hey, I'm not sure if I agree with this. Can I just listen? Or here's my thoughts about this. Here's where this seems like it might make sense. And if you, that is really too hard, get up, grab a cup of coffee, go to the bathroom. We'll see you in five minutes. Thank you. <laughs>